Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. I'm Mick, and uh, as you guys know me better as Professor D or as the other guy, and I'll be taking the uh, the helms of the lesson this week in our I'm not sure if we should call it the last Zoom because I have a feeling Zoom will creep in there or eventually, but uh, definitely, you know, um, just in, in our continuing series of podcasts, at least. Uh, so we're, uh, we've been working on, on Peter and we've been doing a character sketch. Last week, Joel, Big Rev, talked about the, uh, the, the highlights of Peter's career and I get to talk about the, the lowlights. But with that, let's... Uh, Let's open up in a quick word of prayer. Dad, we humble ourselves before you, and we ask you to, to speak to us. We ask you that, that you can teach us things through the life of your servant, Peter, a, a very blessed guy um, whom we are all beneficiaries of because of, of the work that you did via Peter. Um, and we get to talk about him, and, and uh, we just pray that you would communicate to us things that we probably didn't know or see before, or just remind us of those things that we need to be reminded of. However it is, we ask that you, you engage our minds and our hearts in, in today's lesson. And we ask this humbly in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So for as many highs as Peter has, has had, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's had just as many lows. Get behind me, Satan. Peter is as famous for being the leader of the apostles as he's infamous for foot and mouthitis. Last week, we focused on the highs, so today we're going to focus on the lows. Throughout the Gospels and even in, in the book of Acts, if there's one person that stood out among the 12, the one who, who acted as their spokesperson, as their leader, aside from Jesus, it was Peter. Some feel that because his spouse was the only one that was actually mentioned in the Gospels that not only may, was he probably the oldest, but maybe even considerably older than, than the other the, uh, disciples. The Gospels uh, only mentioned Peter's uh, spouse. Uh, Paul later writes about the other apostles having wives, uh, su suggesting that they probably got married a little bit afterwards. But the truth is, we, we really don't know. And, and at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if Peter is the oldest. What is important is that Peter was the, the heir apparent to, to, uh, to Jesus. Um, he was Jesus' number two. Uh, he was the visible leader among them. So without a doubt, Peter had all these great moments with Jesus. And, and this is important to bring up here again because we're going to get down to those moments that, that are going to make you wonder, is this Jesus' number two? Is this the guy Jesus is entrusting to get the church going and yeah it's that peter simon peter for better and worse peter is the one who says out loud what the other disciples are, are thinking and feeling this is why he is the one who is singled out for those most embarrassing moments um peter the one who called jesus the christ in mark 8 41 and son of the living god in 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 a parallel passage in, in Matthew 16, 16. He's also the one rebuked by Jesus as Satan in, Matt, in Mark 8, 33. One moment he's at the top of the class, he's at the head of the class, 
And, and it wouldn't have been great if it just stopped right there. But the next, he, he's the class clown. But let's take a closer look at Mark 8.33. Let's see what the passage actually says. But Jesus, after turning and looking at, does Jesus, who, do, who does Jesus turn to look at? At his disciples. Think about this. If Jesus is addressing Peter and only Peter, why did he turn to, to look at the other disciples? Why was this included in the narrative? Is Jesus seeking their approval? Is he seeking an attaboy from the rest of the disciples? I don't think so. The reason for it is, is that although Peter was the one who ultimately may have said it, Jesus knew that, that he was not alone in the, as Jesus puts it, in not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And while Peter will forever be the patsy, the fall guy, the one who will be remembered as the guy whom Jesus directly calls Satan, not, not even Judas, it's Peter. The truth is that what he called, this, that's what he calls each and every one of his disciples, the 12 back then, and even us today, when we, yeah, we, when we set our personal agendas before God's. How many times have I placed a higher premium on my rest and my relaxation uh, ahead of helping out somebody else? How many times have I allowed my convenience to get in the way of where God would rather have me be, especially if it's to do something that I may not necessarily want to do or, or like doing? How many times have our careers, our education, and yet even our ministries been more important than, than God himself in our lives? How many times has, has it not been more important to us to win that argument at the expense of peace, unity, friendship, building up the church? How many times have we made more of our marriages and families as a focal point over God? And, and here's the thing. What is the immediate matter that Jesus was talking about with his disciples here anyways? He was talking about his impending death. Sure. When you think about what Peter said, it was well-intentioned. No, Lord, I don't want you dying. No, nobody wants to see Jesus die. I, didn't I don't like the fact that Jesus had to die. But as Jesus explained, they weren't being mindful of God's plans. God had plans from eternity past. God made prophecies and promises in the Old Testament that needed to be fulfilled. But like the 12 back then, we do that a lot. Like them, we do and say a lot of well-meaning stuff that, that just isn't right. Marriage and family. As important as they are, as great as they are, how many times haven't we heard or perhaps even said, family first. Is family really first? I remember when someone I, I love and respect deeply once said that to me, to which I kindly countered, no, God first. They agreed. The truth is, I've been guilty of saying family first to others too. But the thing is this, we need to be mindful of what God wants. What God wants has to be our highest priority even over our marriages, our families, careers, or, or whatever. And to be clear, I hope and I pray we don't use God as a pretext to undermine any of those things. All of those things are important, but they're just not the ultimate. If God really is our priority, he will be the center of our marriages, our families, and everything else in our lives. 
Our next look at Peter focuses on the transfiguration. To keep things in context, this happens after Jesus calls Peter Satan about a week later. So what happens? Jesus and his inner circle of three disciples, Peter and the brothers Thunder, uh, John and James, they go up to a high mountain to pray. In Luke's account of it, in chapter 9, per usual, the disciples were, were nodding off during prayer. When all of a sudden, Jesus starts, starts glowing. He starts radiating brightly. Both in Mark 9 and Luke 9, it says that he, Jesus, became really white and bright. Moses and Elijah are there talking to, to the super bright Jesus. Why Moses and Elijah? Like most commentators, I think they represent the two, two major sections of what we Christians refer to as the Old Testament and what the first century Palestinian Jew simply referred to as scripture. Today, the modern Jew would refer to the Old Testament as the Tanakh. Uh, the T and the N of the Tanakh are the Torah and the Nebuim. Moses represents the law, also referred to as the Torah, and Elijah, the prophets, the end of the, the Nebuim. And per usual, Peter's the one to open his mouth. In verse 6 of Mark 9, it says, For they were afraid, and Peter did not know what to say. Now, that's a first. That, but when you think about it, it kind of makes sense, though. Imagine seeing someone like Jesus, the way he's described it, is bright, white, brighter and whiter than anything anyone has seen. Okay, I'll buy it. I'd be afraid, too. But what's going on here? Remember, this is a week later from when Jesus told his boys that he was going to die. Like all genuine first century believing Palestinian Jews, Yes, and I do believe it was most, if not all of them. When they thought of the Messiah, they focused only on the good parts of Scripture. Um, we're talked about the Messiah as a conquering king who would come and establish the throne of David and Israel's fortune and vanquish all their enemies. Yet in Isaiah 53, 8 and 9, it clearly says that the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for Christ, Jesus Christ, had to die. Stop and think about it. This is Because this is even a lesson for us as Christians today. This was a difficult passage for them to wrap their heads around back then. How, how could the Messiah, the conquering king who will rule forever on the throne of David, die? Doesn't this seem, well, contradictory? It doesn't make sense. If I was in their shoes, I would have been just as confused as they were about the Messiah having to die. This dying business. It sure does seem like, like we're not understanding something here. I'll pause, and I want to make a parenthesis here that I think that this is a good reminder to us as Christians today, that for all we do understand about end-time prophecies that, that are yet to be fulfilled, there are still many things that won't be clear really till after they happen. Then we're going to go, ah. And with that, let's return to the Isaiah. It says in Isaiah 53, 8, that he, referring to the Messiah, Jesus, was cut off from the land of the living. It goes on to say in verse 9, and his grave was assigned with wicked men. That is, Jesus was going to die alongside criminals, and he did. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death. If you guys recall, Joseph of Arimathea, a well-to-do rich guy and high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin, 
he took possession of Jesus's body and gave him a rich man's burial. But these scriptures were not 100% uh, understood or they were overlooked or ignored or, or whatever. Regardless, it didn't fit with the version of the narrative that they liked. And yet, it was all part of the Messiah's narrative. According to scripture, he had to die. And let's look carefully at what Peter says in Mark 9, 5. Rabbi, referring to Jesus here, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Did you catch that? Peter is still up to no good here. He still doesn't want to see the version of, of, of Jesus, the Messiah, dying. The idea behind the shelters is connected to a prophecy in Zechariah 14, 16, where it says, Then all who survived from all the nations that came to attack Jerusalem will go up annually to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, and to observe the feast of shelters. It's like Jesus calling him Satan wasn't the end of the matter. Hard-headed Peter is still insisting on his well-intentioned desire on the one level of Jesus not dying, but he's also selfish on another level because, frankly, he wants to rule alongside this Messiah, King Jesus, especially with him being one of the, the inner circle three. Aren't we, aren't we like Peter? When the prospect of God's will for our lives doesn't seem to go along with our expectations of what the Almighty's will should be, of how we envision his will for our lives, don't we stubbornly try to, to rewrite the script? Don't we try to force our personal agendas? There was a great point made in this week's sermon on the Apostles' Creed that God is not the co-signer of our personal wills and agenda, but that he is the king that lays out the will and the agenda. And that we are the ones that need to follow. I don't pretend to know in exactitude what God's will for my life is. I know that he loves me. Uh, I know he has a wonderful plan for my life. But there's a lot I cannot say with 100% accuracy on all the particulars. If you asked me two years ago about going back to, to, to school, uh, I would have told you, um, nope, too old. Married with children, that ship has passed, et cetera, et cetera. If you would have told me that I was going to go back to Moody Bible Institute, I love Moody. I, I am indebted to Moody. I, I am grateful to Moody and, and appreciate it on so many levels. I really don't have the words to express. I learned a lot of things at Moody that in the church I was growing up in, I just really wasn't getting. So I am very grateful for Moody being a part of my, my journey. Um, but the first time around, I would have told you that, that I was infatuated to the point of making the mistake of thinking that it was God's will for me to be a pastor or some great Bible teacher or something like that then. And it's clear to me now that that was not God's plan for my life. All I know at this point is that God's will for me to return and get a degree from Mo was to return to Moody and get a degree. And believe me, my intentions weren't to go back to get a degree from Moody. I mean, I looked everywhere else. I was like moments from almost signing the dotted line for Regent University, but things didn't pan out. Beyond that, there's a, there's a lot I don't know. Left to my own will, I thought I would be a great pastor slash teacher, preacher, some successful inner city church 
of some successful inner city church that would have been, led thousands of people to the Lord. And that sounds great, doesn't it? But like Peter, not wanting Jesus to die. Same thing. Like ruling alongside Jesus. Again, good intentions. But the truth be that even, even though those are really good goals, that, that's just not what, what was going to happen. Jesus had to die. It wasn't going to be this thing where Jesus was just going to come over and take over his king. He had to die. Um, ruling alongside Jesus, we're going to have to wait till the end time. But that, so that didn't happen for Peter and the disciples in, in their lifetime. And, it, and a lot of things don't happen like that for us in our lifetime. You know, so I graduated from Moody. Now what? Here I am. What I do know is, again, that God uses me as a teacher. And I'm happy to be used as a teacher. Um, I've had the privilege of, of teaching many people whom I consider better and, and more successful than me. I get to teach alongside Joel, who, who is one of the biblically smartest and soundest people I know, a great friend and presence in, in my own journey. I get to teach and celebrate recovery, a great ministry where, where I get to see lives that have been dramatically altered for the better. I may never be the bee's knees, and I may never draw audiences in large numbers, but I get the opportunity to talk to people about God, whether it's teaching people in small groups at church or it's witnessing at my job where, where I may be the only Jesus or Bible that most of the, them will ever see. And don't get me wrong. I still think God is going to open other career paths soon, even if it's not in ministry. But until he does, I'm where he has me and I will be receptive to his will over my goals or agendas. What I, what I do know is, is this, he is good. And even if he's, if it's through a season of, um, or a lifetime of trial and suffering, I know in the pit of my soul that God is working all things out. Even knowing this, just like Peter and the disciples, I struggle and resist God's will. But I also know that the will of the almighty will prevail. And when you consider that he has willed our salvation before the creation of the world, there's comfort in that. All this to say that like Peter, we are stubborn, we're hard-headed, and we have a knack, even as disciples, because yes, he's a follower of Jesus, even as disciples, believers of Christ, we have a, a bad habit of resisting his will. Dare I say it, sometimes even working against it. Next, we have the feet washing incident. Where to begin? So many wrongs. Let's start at the beginning with the arrival. First, not one of them, mind you, all of them are subordinate to Jesus, but not one of them gets up to wash at least Jesus' feet. Let's call that one strike one. So Jesus, masterful as he is of every situation, he turns this into an object lesson on humility and servant leadership. He gets down and starts washing their feet. In John 13, 4 and 5. Verse 6, he gets to Peter. Peter. In classic mode, Peter, he does what he does best. He opens his mouth. I did mention it was Peter, right? Anyway, so Peter, he basically says to Jesus, you are cleaning my feet? To his credit, Peter actually saw the wrongness of the situation. Jesus answers him in verse 7. You do not understand what I am doing now, but you will understand after these things. In other words, Jesus is telling Peter... Don't miss the forest for a tree. Trust me. 
Learn what I'm teaching you about humility and serving others for a change. And that should have been the end of that, except Peter, being Peter, opens his mouth again. You will never wash my feet. I can imagine the other disciples in the room being like, Peter, dude, shut up. Let him finish already. So Peter tells Jesus he cannot wash his feet. That's, now, I'm, now I'm imagining Jesus. And he's probably there with this kind of deadpan look on his face. And Jesus replies to him saying, if I do not wash you, that is, if I, Jesus, do not wash your feet, Peter, you have no share with me. By the way, for those keeping count, that's strike two. And of course, because he's Peter, he then tells Jesus, well, Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Strike three. At this point, Jesus replies telling him, and I, I can see Jesus with this look on his face, dealing with this man child. And I can see Jesus telling him, the one who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely bathed. And we do this to Jesus all the time. Jesus is constantly telling us, trust me, learn. He's constantly telling me, trust me. Except I'm, a, I'm that annoying man-child who doesn't know how to trust him and doesn't have enough sense to shut up. I'm constantly bugging him along the lines of saying something, are we there yet? Are we there yet? How long, Lord? Are we there yet? Look, there's nothing wrong with a question here and there for, the, for God. But when we don't get the immediate answer or, or, or we don't get the response that we want or like, we must also stop and trust him and listen to him. We need to listen to him and, and trust him. David does it, in, it throughout the Psalms all the time. Psalm 13 comes to mind. He starts off lamenting or complaining, but then he has enough sense to reaffirm his confidence in God. How long, O oh Lord, needs to move into, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David came to a place of trusting God. Unfortunately, I find myself to be much closer to the Peter school of doing things than David's in this regard. Like Peter, I start off wrong. I go from questioning, but instead of learning and trusting, I go to resisting him. Uh, Jesus then has to put me in my place, reminding me how important it is for me not to resist for the sake of fellowship with him and participation. But like Peter, more often than I care to admit, I completely miss the point of the object lesson he's making. Like Peter, I try Jesus's goodness and patience. Boy, do I try it. And I have a funny feeling I may not be the only one. As we saw earlier, it's not a secret that Peter, well-intentioned though he may be, yet ultimately misguided, was not a fan of Jesus the Messiah dying. He failed to learn from Jesus, calling him Satan earlier, and again, later, when Jesus said uh, no to Peter's proposal about, about setting up the shelters on the mountain. You see, Peter didn't like the narrative, and he kept resisting it time and time again. And he keeps trying to rewrite it to what he envisioned as the proper happy ending. I can nod my head in disapproval of Peter doing, doing this, but the truth is, I do a version of this all the time. And now we, we come to Jesus predicting Peter's denial and the denials themselves. In Mark 14, 31, after Jesus tells his disciples, you will abandon me, 
Peter, in classic Peter mode, tells Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. In John 13, 38, Peter, uh, Jesus tells Peter, I tell you the solemn truth. The rooster will not crow until you have denied me, not once, not twice, but three times. What happens next? Jesus goes to pray at Gethsemane, and Peter falls asleep during prayer. Mark 14, 32 through, through 41, as the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Peter, who couldn't stay up during prayer, all of a sudden musters up this kind of brave heart, you know, fervor, and chops off the ear of, a, of the high priest's slave. In John 18, and we get that in John 18, 10 and 11. Again, going lanes to go against what Jesus told him had to happen. Have you guys never noticed this before? Besides this being the story of how Jesus won our salvation on the cross, the backup feature seems to be how Peter was in constant denial of what Jesus had to do to the point of literally denying him. At every turn, Peter seems to be running interference to Jesus. It makes me, me wonder how often I go against what God is trying to accomplish in my own life, at work, in my family, in my extended family, at church. Remember, people, Peter's a disciple, a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Yet time and time again, he fails. He falls and he fails. Makes you kind of wonder what's the real difference between Peter and Judas. Peter's denials, and I'm stressing that S for, for the plural because it was more than one, is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Mark 14, 66 through 72. Luke 22, 54 through 62, and John 18, 15 through 27. The more I look at it, Peter's denial did not begin the night of Jesus' arrest. It was a perpetual pattern of wanting to force his, his vision of how Jesus Christ's superstar should have happened instead of trusting God. We all struggle as disciples, mind you, with thy will be done, especially when thy will be done is difficult. The good news is that by Acts, Peter does look more like Jesus than he ever did in the Gospels. He makes some amazing strides. He, he's clearly the leader after Jesus ascends to heaven. And, and so, so that's it. Peter finally arrives. End of story. Nope. Sadly, I cannot inform you that. That Peter's fumbling stopped in the pages of the Gospels. We move to Galatians 2, 11 through 14 to provide a quick context where the church of Corinth was too liberal for its own good with uh, its members moving back to pagan practices that they were saved from. The church in Galatia suffer, suffered from the, the, its polar opposite. It was regressing towards a reliance on religi religiosity instead of trusting the gospel message of salvation by faith. With that, let's read what Paul reports in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in, the, this, in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, 
you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? To be clear, Cephas is Peter, where Peter is uh, Greek for, for rock, Cephas is, is the Hebrew equivalent. So, so what's happening here? Simply put, Peter was reverting to, to an old way. We have to remember that the earliest Christians came out of what? They came out of Judaism. And while they embraced the gospel, you have to remember that all their lives, they had been religious and they tended to put a higher premium on religious practices than they should have. What's worse, they struggled with the idea of salvation going beyond Israel's borders. For them, it was bad enough that Samaritans were saved, but Gentiles, non-Jews, they struggled with this. They reluctantly accepted that God was serious about the Great Commission going beyond Jerusalem, that it really did include Judea, Samaria, and yep, those Gentiles. Gentiles were, were worse than Samaritans. The apostles, the early church, they, they were people. They had biases against other people groups. They struggled with them. But, but in Jesus, in the gospel and Christianity, people were being called together. Diverse people were being called together. Peter knew this. And, and he was there when the Gentiles finally got the gospel because he, Peter, he was the one that, that actually broke ground in, in this. It was, it was in, in Acts chapter 10. After God gave Peter this vision that, that the Gentiles, again, the non-Jews, would be included within God's plan of salvation, it says in Acts 10, 17, that Peter was inwardly perplexed. He was confused, and, and he was puzzled by what he saw to be God's meaning. Peter eventually makes it to Cornelius's house, um, who was not just a Gentile, you know, because the Gentile could very well have been a Greek, you know, Israel's former overlords. But no, it was, it was a Roman centurion. Israel's current overlords. And yet by verse 34, Peter says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and, and does what is right is acceptable to him. In other words, anyone, Gentile included, if they have faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior is saved. So yeah, Peter was the guy who broke the ground in, in, in this, in this uh, new territory, and in his and in case uh, his vision was from a bad case of indigestion and not God's will, in verse 44, it makes sure that you know that that's not the case. It says, while who? While Peter was still saying these things, that is, he was sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from the circumcised who had come with Peter, in other words, there were other traveling Jews who were who are now Christians who went with Peter on this joyride, were what? They were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was what? Was poured out even on the Gentiles. The Gentiles experienced the same things that the Jews, the saved Jews did in Acts chapter 2, and the saved Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 did. And Peter was there for, for all of these. In Acts chapter 15, before the Jerusalem council, when some Jewish Christians felt that Gentiles should be circumcised like, first, like the first Christians were, it is Peter in Acts 15, 7, who, who, who gets up and speaks up and says, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, that is, it was by, by my preaching, me, Peter, 
the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our, our fathers nor we were, have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the speech by Peter that paved the, the path forward for, for the expansion of the gospel of Christianity among the Gentiles. Paul was there. It is believed that the Jerusalem Council happened somewhere around 49 AD. It is believed that Galatians were written sometime shortly after that. Peter will go on to write his first epistle somewhere in the 60s AD, perhaps about 64 AD. And why do I throw these numbers out there? 49 AD. Peter has been a disciple and an apostle of Jesus for a long time by this point, not like in 33 AD when he denied Jesus. Only a Christian, it, it, you know, back then, he was only a Christian back then for, for just three years. By 49 AD, Peter had been a part of, and he had witnessed a great many things, including seeing uncircumcised Gentiles being saved. What makes the Galatians 2 hypocrisy particularly damning is that Peter was the guy who actually presented God's case of that salvation. So not only was he the guy that broke that ground, but he was the guy that actually made the case for it in the Jerusalem council. Uh, and I've also pointed out the fact that, that the, uh, the Peter wrote his epistles in the 60s AD to show that Peter actually continued working with the Gentiles in, sp in spite of this momentary bump in the road. And he kept working with the Gentiles to the end of his life. Uh, the target audience of First Peter, as, as we're going to see in the following weeks, are Gentile Christians. But it's also a lesson that while Peter may have been its first proponent, he, he struggled to accept even as an eyewitness and, and veteran Christian. We've seen that, that God do amazing things in our lives. And we've seen the hand of God at work in our lives, both in our prayers and in our experiences. And yet every so often, we, we succumb to hypocrisy. Um, I teach about not slandering, yet every so often, I succumb to it. Uh, I talk about being nice to people regardless, and yet to my very own teenage daughter, who I constantly tell this to, I constantly fail to follow through with this. I struggle with hypocrisy. I've been a Christian now for nearly 40 years of my life. I've... I've Gone to Moody, I, I go to church faithfully, I teach, I teach at church, I'm a leader at church, I'm very knowledgeable theologically, and I still struggle with hypocrisy, just like Peter. You know, um, like Peter, for whatever highs or, or spiritual milestones I may have, I still need to be humbled. I still need to be called out. I, I need to be put in my place. How was, how was it that Paul put it? I need to be opposed to my face every so often. I'm Peter. My wife is generally the Paul. But let's not end this on a down note. Yes, we, we had to talk about Peter's, uh, you know, missteps as a counterpoint to his greatest hits from last week. As, as we're going to set up our series in 1 Peter and, and you know, once, once we get back together live. Um, 
And yeah, we have all too many moments like Peter as disciples of Jesus as Christians, even veteran Christians. We, we struggle accepting God's will time and time again, even as we try to be a part of it. Occasionally we have our, they're called Satan moments. I know I've been a stumbling block and I know I, I, I can still be one now. We struggle with, with past defaults and former ways of thinking. We struggle with hypocrisy. But, but here's the thing, Peter, after corrected first by Jesus and later by Paul, he rose to challenge. He didn't choose to stay down. He didn't quit. He didn't go, oh, well, I failed. I might as well off myself like Judas did. No. He took his admonishments and he grew. He failed, but he kept at it. I believe we, we will still see a day where we're going to get to see our brother Peter and we're going to see him walking on water again. But the difference this time is he won't sink. This has been Masterclass Theology. Thanks for listening and, and God bless. All right, you guys can unmute yourselves. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.